I heard this week on a podcast that I was listening to about uh, a, a blossoming new industry that may give you a um, job opportunity. And it's in the realm of therapy and counseling that there's a new breed of therapists and counselors who specialize in helping parents struggling with empty nest syndrome. You know, kids grow up and they go to college, uh, they get married, they join the military, whatever, they end up on their own, and all of a sudden mom and dad are not mom and dad anymore. They're just husband and wife, and they've got to figure out how to live on their own. And so all these therapists are helping counsel them to um, help them get through this new season in life. And I thought, you know, there's something wholesome about that. Um, Parents miss their kids, that's a good thing. Parents trying to adjust to a new season, that's, that's a good thing. And then I found out that these therapists charge up to $250 an hour. Y'all, I know God called me to pastor this church. But $250 an hour is a lot of money. Uh, but, but there's something important about that, right? That, that when families separate, even under the best of circumstances... It's hard. Even in the best case scenario, you, you pour your life into raising these kids and then you have to give them that violent shove out of the nest and that's hard. But how much more difficult is it when families separate for less than ideal reasons and in less than ideal circumstances? Whether that's a divorce, whether that strained relationship between mom and dad, whether it's conflict in the extended family, separation is hard. And I know some of you are, are probably living through that, or you have lived through that, maybe for years now, and you feel the acute pain that comes when families go their separate ways, when there's conflict and when there's strife, and you want to do your best to honor the Lord in that, but it's not always easy. It's not always easy to take the high road, is it? I mean, I know I'm not the only sinner here. Somebody help me. It's not always easy to be forgiving and to be patient or to be understanding, even to be ripped off. And tonight, as we look into Genesis chapter 13, we're going to see Abraham go through that kind of separation. We're going to see conflict in Abraham's extended family. But I think this passage of Scripture is a really precious gift to us. Because it helps us learn that in family conflict, we are able to take the high road. Because we know that our future is shaped by the promises of God. That God has promised us that even if our family is wrong, even if we are wronged, God is going to make it right. This passage teaches us that we are able to take the high road in family conflict because Jesus has said our future will be right, even if our family is not right. Let's keep that in mind tonight as we read Genesis chapter number 13. Verse 1, So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel, to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock 
and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. It's not the whole land before you. Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord abideth forever. Over the past few weeks, we've journeyed with Abram, who began this walk of faith back in Ur of the Chaldees in modern-day Iraq. Journeys from there into modern-day Israel. Worships the Lord, builds altars, follows God's call, and surrenders to the Lord's plan for his life, and in faith lets Jesus shape his future. But we also saw last week that Abram finds himself in the middle of a famine. He finds himself in the middle of a crisis that he did not choose, a crisis that he can't control, and a crisis that he can't change. And he has to figure out, what can I do to make sure that my family survives? That's a question most families are going to have to ask once or twice along their journey. And so he makes the very common sense decision to go to Egypt. But while that decision was a common sense decision, it was not a faith-filled decision. And when he gets to Egypt, he has to have this conversation with Sarah. And he says, because you're so beautiful, when the powerful men of Egypt see you, they're going to want to claim you for themselves. They're going to want to kill me. And so here's what we're going to do. We're just going to tell everybody you're my sister and we're going to leave it there. And that's what they do. And sure enough, the powerful men of Egypt, they see Sarah. They take her and Pharaoh puts her in his harem. But God is faithful in the middle of Abraham's faithlessness. God intervenes with a plague on Pharaoh's house to bring Abram back, as our text says, back to where he started. Winston Churchill once said that success is not final. Failure is not fatal. It's the courage to continue that counts. And here we see in this text Abram's courage to continue. At least we see his confidence in God to continue. His belief that God was able to bring his family back to where they needed to be so they could get to where they ought to be. And I just want to say to you tonight, it's not what I'm going to preach about, but it's worth preaching about, that God is able to bring us back from where we are to where we ought to be. That in spite of our faithlessness, in spite of our bad decisions, in spite of all the ways we even might screw up our family, in spite of our selfishness, in spite of our lies, in spite of all the junk that we bring into our story, God is able to get us back to where He wants us to be. And so Abraham has experienced the blessings of God. But in this passage of Scripture, those blessings become a burden. Because Abram, who has all of these great resources, livestock, and even silver and gold, and 
tents, servants, finds himself in a place geographically where the land is not able to support him and his nephew Lot. As we're going to see tonight, that's going to lead to friction, and it's going to lead to separation. That word separation appears several times. You can see it, for instance, in verse 14, but it keeps coming up again in this text. And the word separation there is a word that means separation, but separation as a result of something broken. A piece of pottery that's shattered and flies into a million pieces. It's even an orthopedic word. When a, a joint is out of harmony or a bone is fractured, separated. You see conflict and you see pain in this family as people have to go their separate ways. And is that not the story of our families too? The story of our family is not marked by this kind of painful separation where things are not what we want them to be and things are not what we plan for them to be. Where people just can't live together. That's just what they say in this text, right? This land ain't big enough for the both of us. People just can't live together. And you have this really, really understandable and relatable family feud. And so tonight we're going to look at this family feud. But I also think it teaches us how to fight well. It teaches us how to take the high road. And if we're going to have families and if we're going to feud, y'all, we need to learn to fight well. Some of y'all been married for a long time. You've never learned how to have a good fight. Some of y'all about to get married. You need to learn how to have a good fight. Uh, maybe there's conflict with your kids. Maybe like Abram, it's extended family. It's a niece or a nephew or cousin, whoever it might be. How do we learn to take the high road? Trusting that our future is going to be made right by the promises of God. Even if our family's all wrong. Well, I want to talk about that with you this evening by looking at three sets of subjects in this passage that help us learn how to navigate and take the high road in these family feuds. The first set of subjects we'll talk about is conflict and concerns. Conflict and concerns. As this text develops, Abram has a problem. <clears throat> I don't know if you've paid attention to this, but Abraham has the best problems of anybody I've ever heard of. In chapter number 12, his problem is that his wife's too pretty. Here, his problem is that he's just got too much stuff. Like, who is this guy? What's going on with him? Wouldn't you like to trade his problems for your problems? <laughs> but here we're told that the problem is that all of the blessings of God, the, the material blessings at least, the blessings of livestock, the blessings probably that he earned back in Egypt in verse number 16 of chapter 12, sheep and oxen, and donkeys and servants and all those high-dollar camels. Well, they've got to have a place to eat, right? And so that means there has to be pasture land. There has to be somewhere for them to graze. And the Bible tells us that Abram's nephew, Lot, also had an abundance of blessings, an abundance of stuff. And so now they're at a point where there's just not enough land to feed all of the animals that they've been given. But I want to point out to you tonight that nowhere at this point does the Bible moralize this conflict. In other words, the Bible does not say, now you know Abraham's right because this is Abraham. Of course he's right. The Bible does not say Abraham's right because he might be a little bit richer. Or because he's a little bit older. Or because he's the head of the family. And the Bible never says that Lot's right because he's a little bit younger. Because maybe he's just trying to get established and get started. The Bible never says that. The Bible just presents it in plain fact that there's not enough resources to meet everybody's need. And in this case, the need is material. Right? Livestock means wealth. Wealth means money. Now, not every family dispute is about money. But let's be honest, they're all about money. <laughs> uh, certainly, certainly, they're not all about material needs. That's, that's not true. But um, a lot of times it is true, right? 
One thing I know is always the case. That just as you see for Abraham and Lot, conflict arises in human relationships because of unmet expectations, because of unfulfilled desires and unsatisfied longings. I want you to think really, really long and hard about these verses in James chapter 4. I think about how they may be at work in the dynamics of your family right now. James 4 too. He asks, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? What are we even fighting about? You ever wondered that in your family? Conflict has been going on so long. Cold wars just seething underneath the surface. What are we fighting about? Is it not this, that your passions, your desires are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have, James says, because you do not ask, because you don't trust in God to meet your needs. All human conflict and the division and separation that occurs in our relationships occurs because people have unsatisfied desires, unmet needs, and unfulfilled longings. But tonight what I want you to hear from me is this. We should not begrudge people for having needs. I hate to break it to you, but you're needy too. I mean, I know that, that we like to just bash needy people and we say, well, they're so needy and all this. But we're all needy. Like, I've got to have food. I've got to have water. But I have needs that go beyond just my physical needs, don't I? When I was a child, I needed to hear from my parents that they were proud of me. That they loved me. That I belonged in my family. As a husband, as a, as a man, I need to know that I make an impact. Guys, we need to have our ego stroked every now and then, right? Ladies... You have a different set of needs. And all of us, frankly, we're, guys, we're still trying to figure it out. But we, we know, at least we hope we know, that um, you, need, you need words of positive encouragement. You need attention. And you need affection. Ladies, you have your place. You should have said, amen, Brother Jesse. Yes, we do. We need those things. And it's not wrong to have those needs. But conflict comes in some way when those needs go unmet. When those needs go unmet. Those needs can be weaponized because we're sinners. And like Abraham and Lot, we look at all of this when it relates to our needs as if there is a zero-sum game. I mean, let's, let's call it what it is. There's only a certain amount of acreage available to them. And if Lot has more, Abraham gets less. If Abraham gets more, then Lot gets less. And often we reduce our conflicts to that same level, don't we? Well, if I give her too much attention, then that means I can't give attention to myself. If I take time with my kids, then I can't have time to go run over here and do this other thing that I want to do. Why are they making so many demands? Why are they so clingy? Why are they so needy? James says that's a failure to live by faith. And we're going to see how Abram's faith makes the difference in this conflict. But I want you to think about how the way people's legitimate needs maybe have been weaponized in your family, or the way maybe you even have a tendency to delegitimize the, the true needs that other people have. To view them as something threatening to you. To view them as something dangerous to you or something hurtful to you. To take your spouse who's supposed to be your partner. Yeah, you have a need for affirmation. Yes, you need help. But have you turned your spouse into a slave? That happens. Have you turned your children into an idol? Yes, they need affirmation, but like we talked about this morning, they're not supposed to be the ones with the real weight in the home. That's supposed to be mom and dad. And the way that can spread across generations, where children who aren't loved well by their parents become maybe your nieces and nephews with addiction issues as they're trying to satisfy some craving that half. Man, it's no wonder our families are a mess, are they? And our families are a mess because we have needs. 
as human beings. But as sinful human beings, we weaponize those needs. We are jealous of other people. We envy other people. We try to protect, like maybe Abraham and Lot are doing here, we try to protect ourselves at all costs. And those who are supposed to be family very quickly become enemies. That's the conflict, but there's also concern in this passage. Conflict and concern. In verse number 7, the Bible, the last sentence of this verse, makes what seems to be a really unnecessary statement. It doesn't seem to advance the story at all. It says that at the time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Now, I'm not, I'm not trying to, to mock the Word of God by any means, but that's not, that's not necessary. To tell me that there were Canaanites living in Canaan is as helpful as telling me that Mexico was full of Mexicans. Of course. Why is that important? Why does it matter? Well, go back to the previous chapter. What had God told Abram? God said, Abram, I'm going to bless your family so that in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. What did Abram mess up and what happened to him when he was in Egypt? He represented God poorly before Pharaoh, right? And he didn't bring blessings to Egypt. He brought curses to Egypt. And Pharaoh has to rebuke, ungodly Pharaoh has to rebuke godly Abraham for his selfishness. I think what's happened here is Abram has learned his lesson. And maybe he gets up one morning and is drinking his coffee and looking at all of his, at all of his herds and his flocks and his camels. And he sees the herdsmen fighting and he sees the shepherds aggravated. And he knows everybody's tense and he knows everybody's angry. And it dawns on him, this does not represent God well. This fighting does not honor God before a watching world. I want to encourage you tonight, in the middle of your family feud, to be concerned with the same thing that I think Abraham is concerned about here. Be concerned about your testimony before the world. Y'all, the light that shines the further shines the brightest at home. And if we're not careful, we can fuss and fight with our families in such a way that we dishonor the name of Jesus. Listen, we love each other at church on Sundays. But we can call our spouses names we wouldn't call our dog. Talk to our children in unhelpful ways. Disrespect our parents. Say nasty things about extended family. And maybe they're wrong in the situation. But we can let their fleshly attitude enrage our flesh, right? And never stop and think, how does this reflect upon my God? I think that's Abraham's concern. So that's conflict and concern. The second set of subjects I want to talk about from this text tonight are conversations and choices, beginning in verse number 8 through verse number 13. Conversations and choices. There's a problem. The problem's not complicated. And this is why this passage is so helpful for us, because this is a family feud, and it's not our family. We're not drawn in to pick sides. We're not emotional about this. We don't have a dog in this fight, right? This is, not, this is not our circus and these ain't our monkeys, okay? But this problem is not going to get better on its own because the animals are always going to have to eat. They need land and they're not making any more of it. This is not just going to get better. Somebody has to do something. And here Abram takes the initiative by starting the conversation. Very simple statement in verse number 8. Abram said to Lot. Abram said to Lot. Abram said, I am going to be the peacemaker. Matthew 5, 9. Blessed are the peacemakers. For they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are the people who work to make peace. And give peace in the lives of others. Get this. Lot was not at peace in this story. 
And Abram said, I want to do what I can. I want to take the high road, even if I have to take the hit, so that Lot and his people can live in peace. Y'all, our God is a God who makes peace. That's the only hope that we have, is that our God is a God who manages conflict, and our God is a God who forgives his enemies. But if we are going to be his children living in this world, then we have to let our God make peace through us. And so Abram, sensing all of that, starts the conversation. I don't know who needs to hear this tonight, but I'm, I'm just going to tell you. Start the conversation. Start the conversation. The problems are not going to get better without somebody being willing to open up lines of communication. Two things I know about conflict. Well, three things. I'll preface it with the first one. We're terrible at resolving conflict. We're really terrible at resolving conflict. But here's what I can tell you tonight. What I can tell you is that conflict does not get better without conversation. It does not get better without conversation. Conversation is the tool that God has given us to diffuse conflict by talking and by listening. Second, I know this. Based upon the Word of God, I'm going to show you this in Scripture. It is the responsibility of the person who senses division to start the conversation. Let me show you two verses of Scripture from the Lord Jesus that I think teach this principle. Matthew chapter number 18, verse number 15. Listen carefully. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. So in this situation, this is a church dynamic. In this situation, somebody has sinned against you. They're wrong and you're right. Who starts the conversation? The person who's been wronged. The person who needs to forgive. They go to the other person. But now... Back in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says this, verse 23, If you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, the implication is that you're wrong. And they've got a problem with you because of something you did. Leave your gift there before the altar and go, first be reconciled to your brother. Do you see how Jesus uses familiar language? And then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court. Lest your accuser hands you over to the judge and Jesus says you'll really pay the price for it. Jesus paints two different scenarios. One where I'm wrong, the other where I've been wronged. And in both cases, Jesus says as his followers, it's our responsibility to be the peacemakers. It's our responsibility to go to the person. And if we have to have hard words about how we've been hurt, but graciously offer forgiveness, we need to do that. But if we also need to do the hard thing and eat a little bit of crow and humble ourselves and say, I was wrong and I'm sorry, we need to be the ones to do that. Have people in your family, your kids, your spouse, your parents, grandparents, extended family, cousins, whomever, have they ever heard you apologize? Have they ever heard you offer those words of, I forgive you for this? And I'm not going to hold it over your head. And I'm not going to let your past determine how I treat you in the future. That's what Jesus says here. He says you need to be the one to go because the relationship, the relationship is the most important thing. Abraham says that in verse 8. Let there be no strife between you and me, between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Really, the word is brothers. We are brothers. Now, if you know this story, and we talked about this in Sunday school today, if you know this story, they're not brothers. 
Abraham is Lot's uncle. Lot is Abraham's nephew. They're not brothers. But do you see what Abraham does here? Abraham so values this relationship that he actually paints it in stronger terms than it really is. He's like, you're not just my nephew, man. You're my brother. He cares more about we than he does about me. And what a change that is from Abram in, in Egypt last week, right? Because in that situation, Abraham was selfish. Abraham was out to save his own neck. And he was willing to even put his own wife's life on the line to make sure that he came out ahead. But now Abram says, no, the relationship is the important thing. I want to do what I can to preserve this relationship. And so Abram takes the high road. And we'll talk more about Abram's motivations in doing that in just a second. But it's also important for us, I think, living in the world that we do, to talk about Lot's motivations. And so while this passage does bring up the subject of conversation, it also brings up the subject of choices. Lot's choices. Abraham's choice is to let Lot choose. Isn't that interesting? Because back in chapter number 12, well, the whole issue with Sarah, Sarah never had a choice, did she? Abram robbed her of her volitionality. He took from her her ability to make a choice to determine her own future. You know, one of the things God has done for us in creating us is He has made, made us choosing beings. We make choices, some big, some little. And in relationships, one of the ways that we do damage to our family members is when we take from people their ability to choose. One of the ways that we do damage in our relationships is taking from them the ability to choose. Now, I know that in different stages in the life of a family, not everybody gets a choice. My kids didn't get a vote on whether they came to church tonight. They don't get a vote. It's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is the way that when we feel our needs aren't being met, we withdraw. We give people the silent treatment so that we can get our way. We take their volitionality from them. What I'm talking about is the way that we blow up and we pitch a fit and raise our voice and hit the wall so that we have the final say-so. Abram doesn't do that. He lets Lot choose. He even lets Lot choose, we'll see, foolishly. This is a hard thing. and I don't have great pastoral counsel here, but I will say in the story of the prodigal son, the father let the son go. People have to make their own choices. We all make our own choices in life. Yes, sometimes we pay for them. I know I have. But we dignify people when we let them choose. We dignify people when we let them go their own way. And I think it's important that you know that tonight. Because sometimes we burden ourselves with unnecessary guilt. When other people have made their choice. They chose to walk away from the Lord. They've chose poorly in some way. They just made a bad choice. And we torture ourselves for it when it was their choice. When it was their choice. And you can see that happening in this passage of Scripture, right? You see Lot making a choice that he will live with and that Abraham will live with. And I want to just affirm to you tonight that maybe you're in a difficult situation and it's hard and it hurts. But if somebody else has made their choice, you're not on the hook for that. They're on the hook for that before the Lord. But why does Lot choose what he does? Why does Lot choose what he does? Well, on the surface, it's purely material. Right? And, and that, that's 
how a lot of people operate. What's best for me in the moment? And from one perspective, if you are a like nomadic sheep herder, you know, back in the Bronze Age, you're going to want to be where the green grass is. Okay, yeah, that makes perfect sense. And so Lot lifts up his eyes in verse number 10. He sees the valley watered by the Jordan River, like the land of Egypt. And he says, yeah, that looks good. I'll go there. Of course, the Bible is, is giving us these ominous shadows of the city of Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Lot did not know everything that he was choosing when he chose, purely based on fleshly reasons. But, did you notice the little phrase in verse number 10? This is one of, I think, the most insightful phrases about all of human nature in the whole Bible. It says in verse number 10, that Lot lifted up his eyes, saw the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord. You know what Lot was looking for? Lot was not looking for grazing land. He was not looking for green grass. Lot, with probably out even realizing it, was looking for a way to paradise. He was looking for a way back to the Garden of Eden. And I want you to see this insight because this is so important. Because this is one, this is one of the reasons I believe the Bible's true. Because human beings act exactly the way they ought to act if they are what the Word of God says they are. And what the Word of God says we are is that we were people made to live in fellowship with God. But that fellowship has been broken. And we are doing every single thing that we can to scratch and claw and fight our way back into the paradise we were made for. We are exiled creatures. We are homeless creatures kicked out of the paradise that we belong in. And we want back. Now, we don't always put it in those terms. Sometimes we're just looking for greener pasture. Sometimes we're just looking for a better job. Sometimes we're just looking for the next high. We could be looking for a lot of things. But deep down, inside where it really counts, what we're looking for is a way back into the Garden of Eden. And I want you to hear that, and I hope it helps you understand some of the people that are making maybe foolish decisions in your life. What are they really after? They may not know it, they may not understand it, they may not describe it in those terms, but what they want, what they want is a relationship with God. But as sinners, what they want is a relationship with God without the God who can give it. They want the peace that only God can give without God, the God who gives peace. They want the joy that only God can give without the God who gives joy. They want to find their way back into Eden. And I think you need to know that because I think it helps foster compassion for people. Like Lot's not just choosing with his wallet. He's choosing with his heart. And I want you to think about people the way Jesus thought about people. I want to think about people the way Jesus thought about people. As sheep without a shepherd. As sheep who are defenseless, who are helpless, needy, people who want to get back to Eden. Lot will make a foolish choice. Abraham will make a foolish choice, make a wise choice. Let's talk about Abram's choice by talking about the last set of subjects we'll mention tonight. I call this covenant and consecration. The subjects of covenant and consecration. Verse 14. Abram has taken the high road. He said to Lot, Lot, I'm willing to miss out so that you can have peace. Lot, I care more about us than I do me. You go after whatever it is you think you need, and I will live with the leftovers. That's magnanimous, and that's gracious. 
Why is he able to do that? How can you do that? Verse 14, the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes. Lift up your eyes, Abram. Abram, do you remember what I told you in the first? Abram, do you remember the promises I made to bless you? Abram, do you remember the covenant that I made with you? Abraham, do you remember the arrangement that we have? Abram, look around. Everything you see will be yours. Every place where you step, that'll be yours. Abram, if you could even count the very dust of the earth, that's how many offspring you're going to have. Abram lives as a man who has turned his future over to God. And because Abram has turned his future over to God, he does not have to scratch and claw the way Lot does. He doesn't have to just look for the greener grass because he knows that his story is being written by his Savior. The only way that we are ever going to be able to take the high road when we have family feud and when we have conflict, when our needs are not being met, when people are weaponizing their needs and whatever the story might be, <clears throat> the only way that we can take the high road and forgive and be gracious and take second place and be left out, the only way that we can do that is when we realize that we are receiving everything by the grace of God. That God's promises are what determine our future. And that we are never going to lose anything. If our God's promises to us are true, we're not going to be left out and we are not going to be left behind. Why? Because our future is not up to the family that walks out on us. Our future is up to the God who will never leave us. Our future is not up to the family who does not care about us. But our future is up to the God who loves us with a love that will never let us go. Our future is not up to the family who says, I don't need you. Our future is up to the family, is up to the God who says, I want you as part of my family. And that means this. Y'all, that means that we can live with generosity and with grace in the middle of all of our family feuds. Kenneth Matthews, Bible scholar, said about this, he says that Abraham is leaving his future in the hands of the Lord. But that's not what Lot did, is it? Lot doesn't pray, Lot doesn't build an altar, none of that. Lot is trying to, to, to grasp and cling to and form his own future. But not Abram. You know why that is? Because Abram knew that he was a product of the promises of God. That meant that Abram came to God with his hands open and his hands empty. And because Abram came to God with his hands open, he was able to be open-handed to Lot. Y'all, we've come to God with our hands open. In my hand, no price I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. I came to Jesus and I had nothing to offer Him but my sin. Nothing to offer Him but my shame. Nothing to offer Him but my guilt. And I have received everything in Him. But because I've come to Him with open hands to receive everything, I can live with open hands to give everything away. Because I will never lose what I put in His hands. I'll never lose it. And I can trust God with my future so that I can worship in the middle of family conflict. Did you notice that the text ends with Abram building an altar to the Lord? He's done this before. He'll do it again. Abram builds an altar to the Lord. This is consecration. Abram worships. I know 
Family drama is difficult. I've got a family too. And it's not always God's will for you to move 400 miles away from your family, but it helps. We all have family drama. We all have conflict. Probably going to have more one day. Probably going to have more. But as the people of God, we should make it our goal that no matter what kind of feuds we have, no matter what kind of conflict we deal with, no matter how we're cheated, no matter how we're wronged, no matter what the circumstances are, when the chapter ends, we're able to worship. When the chapter ends, we're able to bow before God in gratitude, And we're able to magnify Him in thanksgiving for all that He's done. What I worry about tonight is that some of you in the middle of a family feud, you've lost your ability to worship. I worry that you've lost sight of God's promises. I worry that you're losing your grip on the grace of God. And you see how other people are hurting you and not how God's blessing you. I worry that because of family issues, you have lost your ability to build an altar. I don't want to lose my ability to worship God. I don't want to lose my ability to be in His presence. I don't want to lose His nearness. I don't want to be able to lose my ability to hear His voice speaking to me. Because that's the difference between Lot and Abram here, right? Abram is navigated by what he hears, the promises of God. Lot is driven by what he sees. I don't want to lose His voice. I don't want to lose His peace. Have you lost that? You lost that because of a fight over pasture land. That seems so far removed from us, doesn't it? Camel's not having enough to eat. But it translates to wheels, executors of estates, who inherits what, whose needs aren't being met, Who's hurt who? What was said when? Which side are we on? So on and so forth. And what have you. Can you worship Him tonight? If not, here's what I can tell you. You could come to the God of Genesis chapter 13. And you can say, Lord, I'm not where I want to be in the middle of this conflict. I'm not showing the grace of Jesus. I'm not showing the glory of God to people around me that might be watching. And I've lost my ability to worship. And the God who brought Abram out of Egypt and put him where he needed to be can bring you out of where you are and put you where you need to be. So that when this chapter of conflict is over, you're able to worship. Let's stand together tonight. Gary, Shanda, would y'all come play for us this evening? Can we bow our heads and close our eyes for just a second? I want to just ask you, some of you I know, and I just want to ask you, how many, how many of y'all are in a family feud right now? Would you put your hand up? I see hands going around. I'm not saying you're wanting to fight. I'm not saying you started a fight. I'm just saying you're, you're in one. It's here. Could be your marriage. Could be kids. Could be cousins. Could be whatever. But you're in a family fight. Let me ask this. How many of you feel like family drama and family trauma has taken your ability to worship your God? Would you put your hand up? I see hands. I see your hands. I want to pray for you tonight that God would be near and His promises would be real. 
And I'm not going to ask you to build an altar, but I would ask you to come to one. Just pour it out before Him and say, Lord, it's all in Your hands. My family and my future, it's in Your hands. God, thank You for this story, what it teaches us about conflict and what it teaches us about ourselves. Right now, there are people that need to respond. Somebody needs to start the conversation and just say, I forgive you, or I need to be forgiven. Somebody needs to think about their witness to a watching world. Somebody needs to worship. Whatever we need, you provide. I ask in Jesus' name and amen.